Welcome back to Unstandardized English. My name is JPB Gerald. I am a black and neurodivergent uh, writer and educator living on unceded Muncie Lenape and Canarsie territory, which you probably know as New York City. On this podcast, I talk to other educators, writers, academics, parents, whoever wants to talk to me um, about ways to challenge the structures of whiteness ableism, and racial-linguistic ideologies. But mostly it's fun. So, uh, in this episode here, we are going to talk to Sam Holdley-Brill, who is a doctoral student at the CUNY Grad Center, um, and he's a student in philosophy. So he has a really, I don't know, maybe existential viewpoint on these topics I like to think about. I always think about race um, from my perspective, you know, I'm a black person, obviously. Um, you know, I've lived in a racialized body, but I've only recently come to a full understanding of the ways that race and racism have impacted me. And he's, you know, going into this, he's white, and looking at this from a really um, s- sort of a different angle. You know, my research and my dissertation is specifically about white educators um, and the ones who choose to do things differently. So, I I would like to talk to him about that question because I know, for example, that I had a white teacher when I was growing up who was different from all the teachers. We didn't talk about race per se. This is the 90s and the language, you know, probably didn't really exist for her to have the conversations with me that I wanted her to have or that I would have wanted her to have. But she knew what was up. Um, And that means that even without sitting for an anti-racism class or anything like that, she knew how to handle things differently from other teachers. So... I always wonder, like, how does someone like that happen? You know, I don't think it's a just good and bad or, or right and wrong, um, but there's got to be something. You know, uh, the people I interviewed for my, my research, none of them took any classes or really had any evolution until they were adults. Um, and so I just wonder, is there something innate or is it just pe- something that people have to learn? My dissertation, the people in it, suggest that everybody had to learn at some point. They had to be taught explicitly about it. But is it possible that there's something that could start earlier in somebody, you know, where they, where they, where they see things differently from other people? I don't know. So... That's a little bit what we're going to talk about today. He also wrote a really interesting Washington Post article um, about CRT. Um, we're going to talk about CRT and particularly why they're so scared of it um, and, you know, the whole way that that sort of thing has bubbled up and become an issue. So I hope that you enjoy the show. Um, there is a link to my Patreon on the show notes. If you like the work, I would appreciate your support, but obviously you are able to listen to it otherwise. Um, And yeah, I'm as ever glad to be a part of the Connected Podcast Network, and I hope you listen to the other shows on our network. Thank you. All right, so good evening. I'm here with uh, Sam Hoadley-Brill. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. Absolutely. Perfect. All right. Um, So, Sam, if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and some of the sort of ideas and concepts you've been working with in your studies, some of the research you're doing, and just let people know sort of what it is that you've been thinking about these last few years. Sure, yeah. So I am a PhD student in philosophy at the CUNY Graduate Center in New York City. Um, I have... I would be in my third year now, but I'm currently on a leave of absence 
this year. I've been um, uh, working with the African American Policy Forum starting last uh, June. So this past summer through this fall semester, and then again this this next semester, I'll continue my work there. But um, my uh, undergraduate work was all in philosophy. There wasn't much, uh, or actually, in, in the philosophy department at my undergrad, there was no, uh, there were no philosophers who worked on race at all. The only uh, academic exposure I had to issues of racial justice came in uh, history courses, and I uh, made sure when I was applying to graduate schools that I would apply to some places where I would ideally have the opportunity to work with some philosophers of race. Um, and the number one philosopher of race who I was uh, most excited to work with ended up being the one that I got to work with. Uh, the late, great Charles Mills, may he rest in peace. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away in September of 2021. But I had the amazing privilege of taking um, three classes with him while I was in my first two years at the Graduate Center um, and just learning his approach to questions of racial justice, um, questions about the social construction of race, uh, his, of course, his, um, his, uh, people would say, you know, his, his landmark contribution, path-breaking book, The Racial Contract, that a lot of people know. Um, it was largely ignored in philosophy departments um, but was taken up in many a history and sociology and education and um, other humanities disciplines courses. Um, but yeah, so basically ever since I got into graduate school, uh, philosophical questions about race have been the ones that I'm most interested in, whereas my undergraduate work in philosophy did not get to um, study that basically at all outside of the sort of um, I mean, you know, when you study race in a history course, of course, certain philosophical issues will come up, but I did not get to engage, you know, explicitly in, in, the, in the way that um, my, I guess, my training in, in the discipline of philosophy would have um, prepared me for it until I got to um, graduate school, but mostly the questions that I'm focusing on are those questions or those issues that I mentioned that Charles Mills works on, uh, issues of racial justice, questions about the social construction of race, um, how we should think about racism and anti-racism, and uh, let's see what, uh, also issues around sort of um, the social, epist social epistemology how knowledge is constructed socially and what um, one's sort of social position in terms of oppression and privilege, uh, how that affects one's ability to um, grasp reality, to know the truth, to uh, have justified beliefs, that sort of thing. Um, so white ignorance, um, issues about uh you know, um, sort of access to knowledge, who gets to participate in the, the construction and dissemination of knowledge, those sorts of things. So, yeah. So thanks for that. There's a lot there that I want to sort of go back over. But what I want to start with, I think, is, you know, so my, you don't know this, but my dissertation, 
I'm not going to go all the way into it because it's boring, but the, the actual thing that I'm doing is interviewing white educators who took my class on, on whiteness and stuff like that. Now it's not about how good my class is, but it's about like, you know, you have to have a certain willingness to engage in these discussions if you're going to take a class that's explicitly about whiteness, right? Right. Um, obviously, there's a lot of, in the last especially year and a half, classes on like anti-racism and stuff like that. And I'm not saying those classes don't have value, but my class is specifically about whiteness. So I'm interviewing these white educators because it's an education degree, so it had to be about education. Um, and, you know, saying like, why? What would lead them to have taken this? I don't just mean how they hear about it. That's that's a survey. But I mean, like, what in their lives brought them to this point, you know? And what I found, and I'm not done with it yet, but just a factual thing that I've found is that to, every single one of them um, didn't really get to engage in these sort of more complex discussions until they were adults. Like it just didn't happen, you know, they weren't, and these were not people who grew up, I mean, one or two of them grew up with like rabidly racist parents, but most of them grew up, you know, sort of color evasive, not talking about it kind of thing. And you can stay in that color evasive space, but not everybody does. So I'm asking you, like, um, you know, you're, you're of a generation after mine, you know, uh, I, I want to know a little bit about how you got to where you know, you were more interested in, in stepping out of that ignorance. Like, obviously, your training came later, but you have to have made that choice in advance. So what do you think yourself um, led you to sort of take a different path from what is generally expected of, you know, the white person out there or whatever? Yeah, I think there were um, a number of factors, but I can point to probably the most salient ones in terms of um, when I was in high school. When I was in high school, um, I was very into skateboarding, and a lot of the friends that I made as a sort of result of being friends with the kids who skate um, were not white. And also, what comes with the territory of skateboarding, especially in a kind of like suburban environment where there's not a ton of like stuff for the cops to do except for ticket kids skateboarding. Um, a lot of uh, interactions with the police. Um, and I, one of the things that I both noticed on my own and learned through conversation with my peers was, you know, the racist element of policing. Um, and that sort of, you know, led me to be, uh, concerned and sort of like, Hey, what the, what the heck, this is not fair. I didn't know much about the history of the United States yet because I had learned a very whitewashed, sanitized, um, you know, Martin Luther King solved racism, um, version of history. Um, then also after my skateboarding phase, that was mostly like end of middle school, early high school. Um, later on in high school, I started getting into, um, well, first I was taking an acting class with a couple of friends. And then through acting class, um, 
got interested in uh, rapping, rap music. And there were some friends who like, they're like, yo, like, I'll show you this verse after class. And, you know, all the girls were like impressed. And I was like, that wasn't that good. Like, I could do something like that. And so like, I got interested in like trying to, you know, became sort of competitive and fun. And then I started getting into like the history of rap and, um, you know, rap culture, watching documentaries, learning about different um, artists and came to develop an appreciation for just hip hop culture. And then also when I started to try to get serious with a couple of friends like, yo, let's like, you know, make some songs, let's record something, let's put on a show uh, this weekend. Um, and some of the people who I started making music with, um, especially my one friend Nasir, who became like one of my best friends, still one of my best friends to this day, um, spent a ton of time, just me, him, and my other friend Roy, and a lot of the conversations that we would just have, just talking about whatever, he would uh, air sort of these grievances about the racist experiences that he had had um, growing up in, um, you know, primarily white uh, space, going to school with mostly white people and sort of talking to us, trying to like explain to us how there were these things that like we didn't see and that we didn't, uh, we wouldn't notice unless sort of we took his perspective into account that sort of thing. And that grew and grew in my like appreciation for um, racism and the sort of like, I would say when I first developed an appreciation for like white supremacy as like sort of like the, like the dominant shaping political system in the United States was when Kendrick Lamar released uh, To Pimp a Butterfly in 2015. And I listened to that and was just blown away. Um, and then that was actually the year I graduated high school. My first course that I signed up for uh, at freshman orientation at UC Santa Barbara, uh, I was admitted to the honors program. So I had to take like this little one unit freshman seminar. And one of the options was this class called What White People Need to Know. And it was taught by the history professor that I ended up taking several other courses with. Um, and that, you know, that seminar really sort of established my outlook on race as sort of coming to see it as, um, you know, the intense social, uh, you know, uh, mode of social stratification in our society that the way that I see it now. And that was, um, I mean, he introduced us to readings by Eduardo Bonilla Silva, you know, racism without racist, uh, George Lipsitz, possessive investment in whiteness, um, that sort of stuff. And I, since then, I feel like I have, uh, there's like no turning back. Like I, I have, I have learned, um, you know, just how much, I don't know if I can, I'll just say gunk, just how much, you know, disgusting, evil stuff is there that is hidden and is not taught deliberately not taught um and that people don't want to talk about um and so shout out to the professor who 
opened my eyes to that. Uh, Paul Spickard, great guy, still serves as like a mentor to me to this day. So that's interesting because there's a lot of stuff in there because what I found there, which is I has in common with people I've been interviewing and stuff like that, is that whatever it is, they had to develop a genuine empathy for people who were not white, right? Whether it was from an individual friendship or relationship or whatever, um, or some of them had relatives or something like that, you know? Um, but it wasn't just that because as we all know, you can obviously, you know, date, marry, whatever, and just hold on to those feelings. <laughs> um, but it, it's, it's the, as some of the people have been telling me and as what I'm learning, because it's, it's, I find this all interesting because it's something I can't experience myself, right? You know, I certainly had to come to my own understanding of racism and whiteness and all that stuff because it's not innate. But like I, my experiences might be innate, but my understanding of it, I still had to do the work, you know? Um, but, on, you know, I can't ever be when it's just you all <laughs> because once I'm there, it's not just you all. Um, exactly, yeah, yeah. But so I find this interesting. But anyway, um, you know, they share that, like, they may have known people of color depending on where they lived. But, you know, a lot of them reflect on, like, were they actually trusted by people of color? You know, um, they may or may not have trusted people of color, but they may not, they, looking back, may not have felt that they were trusted by them to have heard the stories your friends shared with you. You know, um, because unless if you aren't being, being told those things, then you have to be present when the thing happens for you to really understand what it's like, you know. And so it's really hard when it's someone that you genuinely have a, a pure, a close peer relationship to just sort of dismiss it. I mean, you can do it. Plenty of people do it. <laughs> but <laughs> I think it takes extra effort to, to sort of slough it off like that. And then, you know, you went and you actually had to like you had to study it like you had to sit down and like just do the work right you know a lot of the time not so much in the talks that i do because as i mentioned with the sort of reason i'm doing the research on my class is that i'm very direct about what my class is about and talks that i give right the same thing with your class that you took what white people need to know you don't sign up for that class unless you actually want to take <laughs> do that work you don't know well, what's this class i don't know like you you have to be interested in that sort of thing it's not you don't stumble into that class you know what i'm saying um and then once you're on the road you 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 i can't know i can't know from the inside what it's like to be white and learn these things but it seems from everyone who's told me it's just sort of like you 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 know are in an you were in an alternate reality and now you're here in reality you know and now you, you just can't go back you can't you know um and i I'm sure that is destabilizing because I wonder, thinking about this from a sort of an existential uh, perspective, you know, from like just taking a like sort of bird's eye view of the way this must feel to people, is that like, I wonder, and I want to know what you think about this. Do you think that people, and I don't mean people who are taking, like going into the class because you're making a choice to do that, but people who learn aspects of american history and not just american but european history um that you know sort of trouble the uh you know public pedagogy of how the world is 
uh, and then they, you know, they want to reject it. Do you think that they're more actively rejecting it for they feel that destabilization, or do you think that they're feeling the destabilization and running away from it? You know what I'm saying? Like, do you think which which one are you do you, are you feeling like comes first that the discomfort, or are they running away before they feel the discomfort? Well, that's a that's a very interesting question. Um, I feel like it probably. I think both are probably possible and, and probably both do happen. But um, but I also am inclined to think that maybe that like they're not so even separable, like that there's kind of just like a, uh, a, a sort of like defense mechanism that's been inculcated in them, perhaps because they have this sort of, you know, conception of whether it's like the West is good or like, uh, you know, American exceptionalism, like, you know, America's the greatest um, uh, country on earth. So that probably I think that there's some sort of like ideological dogma that whether they like recognize it or not is sort of preventing the full incorporation of the like, data that they're being given or the information that they're being given they're not allowing themselves to sort of take uh to, to draw the natural conclusions from it and even when it's like even even if the information being given would only say reasonably suggest that they just weaken their uh you know um positive evaluation of the u.s or you know, Europe or, or, you know, Western civilization or whatever, um, that they sort of, that they instinctively go to excuses like, you know, well, you know, yeah, it might be bad, but, uh, everywhere else is worse or, you know, that, yeah, well, you know, (laughs) some in when, you know, the, the, the more explicitly like, well, not even explicitly because they don't they don't think of it this way. But you know the things that we would probably see as more um, obviously like racist in terms of like the kinds of excuses that are like, well, but black people had it better in the United States than anywhere else in the world at that time, or like those sorts of uh, things that people will go to. I think a lot of it has to do with the just that that that, that there's this worldview that they have that they don't want to let go of for whatever reason, um, maybe because it would threaten their own identity and their own sense of um, accomplishment and, and, you know, that they deserve what they have. And, you know, that, uh, that because, because I think often when you talk about whiteness and, you know, inevitably, if you, you know, talk honestly about it, you talk about white privilege you talk about unearned advantages that have accrued over time and that sort of thing threatens people's sense of identity in terms of their especially in the US but really i mean probably maybe it's not as as extreme in Europe but the, the sense of um you know everything like that that i have i'm a self-made person that i have earned everything that i have this isn't like some unearned privileges, you know, like I worked hard and I deserve what I have. Don't, you know, it's unjustified to redistribute anything because, 
well, I didn't own slaves or my parents didn't own slaves or whatever. And just no, no, like no willingness to even entertain the kind of more structural things. Also, there's just a lot of ignorance about the things like, you know, the racist implement and implementation of like the GI bill and like housing and the creation of the suburbs. And like that sort of thing was just something that I was entirely ignorant of, but because I, had an open mind when I had finally learned about that stuff when I took like a black studies course later in my first year. Um, I was like open to it and allowed that information to shape my worldview and my understanding of sort of social injustice and distribution of resources in our society and all that. But other people, I think it's too threatening to their sense of self um, and their conception of themselves as, you know, stand up person who deserves what they have and just an American, you know, yeah, that, that sort of thing. I think you touched on it right at the end there, especially because I think about this, I've been thinking about this for a couple of years, and I think that the concept of people deserving what they have is central. It's not, it's American, it's not just American, but, you know, this is the context we're in, so. Um, and I think that if you realize that what people deserve, well, I mean, that's a bigger question. Is like, do people deserve yeah. right? Do people deserve anything? But, like, um, you know, that if you don't feel like your relatively more powerful lot in life is earned based on either what you or your parents or grandparents or whatever did like then what is there right <laughs> for some people you're just like i got there's no you know there's no safety net right you're just like what? i mean identity wise not literally because they have a huge safety yeah, net. Yeah, but i mean right. like you know it's just like so if i don't deserve this then what's keeping me here and then you have to sit with like well there's a lot of things keeping you up here you know um and it's you know i i for me what really because i went to mostly white schools growing up right and then i went to like ivy league school so i was not, i mean it was actually technically a lower percentage of white people than my high school but um anyway it's an ivy league school and then I went to, you know, my master's was mostly online, so a little bit different. Like, the people were mostly white, but I didn't really see them. But then, like, as I was going through my sort of young adulthood and, you know, coming to terms with a couple of different ideas, um, I had sort of one of the things I'd always believed since I was three is that I was smart, right? And I'm not saying I am or I'm not. That's not the point. However, I realized that if when certain things went right for me, it was because I was smart. That's what I, I was like, well, that, that, I did that because I'm smart. The, of course, unsaid implications is certain people were less smart, right? And, you know, when I read the sort of, I don't know, you know, the Leonardo article about smartness as property, which is building on the whiteness as property thing. Um, and it's talking about how, what are people, I can't, I don't want to quote it incorrectly, but it's like, what are people who are smart if there aren't people who are less smart, right? You know? Yeah. Um, and when I started to think about that, it wasn't so much that I believed that suddenly I was less capable intellectually or something like that, but it was also like, who am I to say that I deserve more things because my brain does this or doesn't do that? And then I also later figured out that I actually had, I was neurodivergent. So like there were certain things my brain couldn't do. <laughs> and then should I say that I don't deserve things because of that? Right. 
Um, and I mapped that onto my understanding of, you know, my understanding of race has always evolved over time. And obviously I eventually took classes, but thought about how, you know, when I think about now, I have a family, um, you know, like and a child and, you know, we think about where to live in the future. That doesn't mean I'm going to go anywhere, but you think about these things. And, you know, I think about, not that I want to do this, but you think, you consider like, what would it be like to live in the suburbs? And like now it's just so hard to turn the volume down on like how messed up property value is and how messed up credit scores are and how messed up the way that schools are funded is. And it's just like, you know, not that cities don't have many problems, but it's just like all of these things being tied to, look, a good family lives in this place and we deserve to have this Latin life. So leave me alone. (laughs) Um, And I think like that last part of just, just leave me alone is tied to so much of the the backlash. Obviously there's a lot of money behind it as you've been following, but like any of these things has money behind it. That's not, it's not that it's not worth covering. It's just that it's not surprising. Um, But like, I think with a lot of these people, um, it's, it's uh there's that fear that they won't understand themselves as having deserved where they are exactly exactly and i both understand that just as a human like i know that that's not fun (laughs) it's it's destabilizing right and nobody wants to deal with that but like on the other hand uh you know as i said briefly like what do any of us deserve and on what planet do we deserve more than the next person you know um sorry i don't know if you had something to say that no yeah, and, and and like the, the, it would be so great if we could all get to that point so that we could then have that conversation but the fact that people are so resistant to even entertaining the idea that they don't necessarily deserve everything that they have and all of the sort of privileges that they've been granted is prevents that from actually ever being you know like a serious and um inclusive discussion of with everyone it'd be great if we could all get there but um i mean i don't foresee that sort of thing happening (laughs) well because there's like there's there's a part of this where I totally understand it. I'm not talking about people who started at the top or whatever, but I mean, like, for example, I know plenty of people like my parents, right? And I'm not talking about their beliefs. I'm just talking about their trajectories in life, right? These are people who grew up during Jim Crow, didn't have a lot, right? They got more now. They're not, but like, you know, my mom was a lawyer and, you know, my dad's done things and like, I'm not talking about them per se. I'm just talking about their positions in life and like, it is in my brain here with my thoughts and the way I think about the world, I can say these things, but who am I to tell a person who came from a Jim Crow situation where they like the, the thing that people think, you know, the thing that Republicans even acknowledge is racism when they talk about the, like, you know, fountains, right? Like the actual fountain stuff. Right. Um, And they're in a position where if they said, you know what, I deserve more (laughs) than because of what I went through. I don't agree in my heart of hearts, but like, how on earth am I going to tell you if you've been through that, that, that like, you know, actually no, because we should all have the same amount of things. And that, you know, like, like what can I possibly say 
to someone who's been in that situation. You know what I'm saying? And I don't, I'm not saying you're saying that. I'm not saying it either. I would never tell my like mom, no mom, you should just have less. And she's not, she's not saying this to me. Right. I'm just saying like, um, but I also think that that becomes an issue sometimes with, you know, there's people who I agree with politically and I'm not talking about politicians. I just mean people um, where I have these discussions but they get really dismissive of, for example, like slightly older, like people of color. And I'm not talking about people who are actively causing harm. I just mean regular people. I don't mean the politicians, CEOs and all that. Because like, I think we can have these sort of abstract conversations, but the lived experience of having been in a situation where you really think you're going to die, you know, and you just think I deserve to be left alone now. What can I say? What am I going to say? No, you don't. You should come out here and do like, I'm not going to say anything to you. And so that's, I think that's, and then the other people who live in comfortable positions will say, well, if they deserve to be left alone, then I deserve to be left alone. And so, you know, that's another reason it's hard is that there are people who have been through such stuff that if they get to a good place, how on earth am I going to tell them, no, actually, we need to take some things from you too. Yeah. And to be fair to them, right? Like, like, what it means to be left alone is very context sensitive, right? Like there, there are many ways in which, of course, they do deserve to be left alone, <laughs> right? Um, there's just the, it's it's the 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 sense that the where it becomes difficult to justify is where it's like, uh, you know, no, 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 don't ask me to, um, you know, don't ask me to feel obligated to share any of these you know resources or this wealth that i have amassed you know don't you know um how hard i had to work for this it's like i grant you that you had to work very hard for it um there's just like so much other things to take into account um but yeah i mean that 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 that, that's almost like a whole other level of discussion because so often so often um, you know, we have to start to consider like the global context and like the sense in which like even people who are very much um, not on the more privileged end of the spectrum in the United States, like when you look at it globally, like, well, we still profit off of like this immense exploitation of like, you know, um, in many cases, like enslaved labor and you know very cheap labor in in other countries and that sort of thing but that's i don't know arguably another discussion of course though it's very much related well yeah i mean it's also like what's what's the 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 american dream is to buy some stolen land right you know so like (laughs) so it's like i deserve to be left alone on this land that doesn't actually belong to me right so you know it's just like uh, eh, but, but but like so you you can go down a rabbit hole with that, but like that doesn't mean it's not a useful discussion. It's just like it's it's very complex. On the other hand, I think one of the things that I'm learning in my research is that like one of the things that's important is you have to sit. There's no resolution. Like the the lack of resolution is yeah. that's the work, right? Mm-hmm. You're not going to get to an end point, and you have to be okay with there not being an end point. I think one of yeah. the things, and this is not just whiteness, but it, it is very white capitalists and all that, is this desire for like a period at the end of the sentence. It's just, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. just like, no, 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 no. I'm gonna do this thing, and that's gonna be the end of it. Um, and like, you know, I've, I've, 
I get really frustrated sometimes because, you know, for example, I was just in an experience working on a journal article and I, it was a special issue. And first of all, it's freaking journal. So they, <laughs> I, the article that I got published that got people paying attention to me a couple of years ago, the Decentering Whiteness and Language Teaching article, um, before I submitted it to the journal I submitted it to, I submitted it to this journal. And they said, I don't know, it just doesn't really fit, you know, the, they're, they're like a, a state's journal, like the, you know, California or New York or whatever, right? Journal of language teaching, right? And they said, doesn't, you know, it's not really as relevant to our readership. I said, fine. So I mentioned it's under journal. They accepted it, made some changes. And then like luck of history, it came out the end of May of 2020. And people were like, oh, we should pay attention to him now. And I'm like, interesting. Of course, I wrote it before that, but, you know, um, which is one of the things that I feel weird about. It's just like people are paying attention to me because I wrote an article before all that happened and it came out the week all that happened. <laughs> it's just like, well, but anyway. Um, so that same journal writes to me in February, like, hey man, want to submit to our special issue? And I was like, and then they were writing on the same thread where they had told me they didn't want me to write to you know, a year and a half ago. And they said, we're not sure what happened. You know, the pandemic, we were really busy. And I responded to them to say, you sent this before the pandemic. It, it was March. It was March of 2020, but it was the first week of March. So no, 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 don't, don't lie to me. Um, it's like, it's fine. You didn't want the article. Fine. But don't lie to me. Anyway, so uh, I sent, I worked with a collaborator. I read the article and we told them in the abstract, we told them in the email, we're going to do something a little bit different here. Here's what the format is. And they said, great, so excited. So we sent it to them. They're late in all of their like responses. And then they finally give it back to us. And they're like, please do this very prescribed thing. I'm like, I told you what I was going to do. <laughs> and I did what I said I was going to do. And then you said, don't do that. Now, that's fine if you don't like that. But then you shouldn't have said it already. Anyway, so we, we pulled it. Yeah. We're going to put it somewhere else. But my point is that like what they were asking me to do, it wasn't so much edits, which I don't have a problem because they had nothing to say about our argument, which they had no problem with, which is the thing. Like, if you want to make my argument stronger, do that. Any editor should be making my argument stronger. I don't believe that my arguments are, especially on a first draft, like, fix it, please. Um, but they wanted us to put in, like, what are the very specific, like, boom, boom, boom things that a person should do after they uh. read this art? I'm like, but that is not the point of what I was doing. That is literally the opposite of what I wanted to do. Like, I yeah. do always put in suggestions, but my suggestions are very complex. They're like, please go and read this type of literature, which is not a one step. That's not like you can't do that tomorrow, yeah. right? You know, right. Um, or it's like the discipline needs to incorporate more of X, Y, and Z. It's like, you know, I, I do have to give people guidance, but it's not like one, two, three, you fixed whiteness. Um, yeah. But you know people they just need like an in, you know i've been doing these like silly infographics online because people want the one two three and like i really move against that because i not only does it is it not true like it, it won't work but also even that desire for the one two three is what i'm trying to fight against you know exactly exactly um there are models and like I don't want to be at the point where models themselves are bad because even the people like the old what white racial identity development model from Helms in like the 90s, if you read what Helms actually said, she does not say, and then you'll be done. Like the last step yeah. is, and now you should be open to learning. <laughs> yeah. 
But if you see it reproduced in other places, it's like, and then you're finished. And I'm like, no, right? And so that's why I'm trying to resist putting models in any place because it's like, it's almost impossible for people not to misinterpret it as like a step-by-step -step guide, um, which is a shame because like then you end up with really complex stuff and so people genuinely don't have time and you're just like, what do I do, you know? How do you balance being clear and accessible with not trying to oversimplify something that's very complicated? Yeah, and th this is uh, one of the things that I um, am wary of when people talk about um, well, when when uh, reparations are brought up in the political context. Like, I very much am a hundred percent supporter of reparations. I think the moral argument, the political arguments for it, are you know just. They're, they're too strong to even try to contend with when you look at the history. The, the problem that I see is more in terms of um, in the United States of America, right? Any form of reparations that, you know, as, as looking, looking at the political landscape now, any form of reparations that would pass would not be sufficient at all and then would be taken by the conservatives and the white moderates as like look we did it it's done the solution right that they, they want that one easy quick fix and so it would be some amount uh of presumably um money that would go to uh presumably right the descendants of enslaved African-Americans and I don't think it would be at all adequate and then it would be treated as if you know the same way that they that current white moderates talk about like come on we solved Jim Crow you know it's it's over you know and and you guys got some affirmative action too what's all this fuss about you know like it's it's the the all of these like any little I mean I guess that's true with 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 any you know sort of um any effort to implement any form of corrective justice um is going to end up attracting that sort of response from the white moderate and conservatives um and already has with things like affirmative action of course um so maybe it's not in the comparative sense something to really be worried about because it it, it already we, we already have seen it um but it's something that I do worry about. Um, yeah, but I mean, at the same time, like you can't. <laughs> it, there's there's no good argument against reparations. So, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, with that, with with affirmative action, with with you know, even with aspects of like welfare and stuff like that, you know, um, there's always going to be the eh, so stop now. So yeah. so 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 we get it. Done. Yeah. Um, I actually had someone in my mentions. It was the, um, I don't know if you've seen that account, like uh, critical race theory L's, right? It's like someone like, oh, you know, some like James Lindsay type of person who runs an account that's like, just like, oh, let's make fun of critical race theory stuff. And they, they I, I like got into uh, back and forth with them. And they literally said that ending Jim Crow and passing civil rights legislation was reparations. So you put a tourniquet on a gaping wound and 
you're just like, see? See? I stopped robbing your house. Yeah. Come on. Um, <laughs> it's like that Chris Rock bit where he says, you know, people will rob your house and say, I heard you got robbed. Um, <laughs> so, you know, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 yeah. Um, and that's, and that's, you know, I find it particularly, I was in the, I read the website, ask a manager sometimes, which is, um, she just like advice columns for like workers. Right. Um, and it started out very standard, but over time she's gotten much more like she's you can tell that the author has gotten much more against like hierarchies and capitalism and stuff like that like at first she was just like here's how you like i have a job interview what should i do that kind of thing which like that's something people need to notice stuff sometimes you know what i'm saying um but you can tell that it has gotten she's like features like people who work on like structural racist issues in workplaces and stuff like that and has interviewed them and somebody came on i think it was this week talking about maybe last week talking about that and anyway all this to say is in the comments there was an argument going on and one person was saying like um you know there's some people who favor the i favor the diversity approach as opposed to the anti-racist approach and i'm like the the funny thing about that sentence is, is it's definitely one of those quiet part out loud sentences i'm just like you're right diversity isn't really anti-racist um <laughs> just like I'm glad you see what you're you, you see what you're saying. Um, I'm not I'm not quite used. But they probably don't see it. Yeah, I'm just probably... like I'm just like wait a second. So you, you admit that it's not the same and that it won't. Okay. Um, or like I have somebody in my class. Well, she's a year behind me, but in my program, and this was last year, and she was talking about like she's a principal, and she was talking about you know what do I do about the people who are against anti-racism, and I'm just like you know what that is, right? Like to be anti, like, like you, <laughs> it's like, yes. What do you do about your racist teachers? <laughs> it's like, I don't know, because to me, I'm not super, I'm not saying they don't matter other people like that, but my interest is less in them and more in the white moderate, you know? Um, and they can identify whatever party they want to. That's not, you know, it's what, you know, King said, right? Because, the party doesn't matter that they're just sort of like let's just because to me like for example obviously all these assaults on voting rights and assaults on elections or they're bad and all that stuff but when it's framed as is often like we need to protect democracy right now that's not factually untrue in a sense however i always get this hint at things were fine until they started messing with stuff in the last eight years or whenever that first um you know, voting rights, the voting rights, uh, uh Shelby, sort of, yeah, uh, Shelby, yeah. 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 Um, it's like, uh, it's like, <laughs> it's like, I, I will support the fact that you want to stop them from doing this right now, because right now that you, you have to do that. But like, just in terms of the way you're thinking about it, we, it wasn't like, it wasn't good. <laughs> it wasn't like right. you know things weren't they weren't working um like yes we should stop them from getting worse but the goal has got to be bigger than that and i don't even just mean like what should people do and the ballots and all of that that's a you know more short-term concern but in terms of the way people think about these things like that's why i don't even engage in those discussions anymore because i just get frustrated with people who are just like uh or people talking about um you know, we no longer have a functioning society. I'm like, when did we? Or 
more accurately, this is sort of how our society works. <laughs> like it's like it's yeah, like, it's right, like there's right, no right. difference. Either it was never functioning, or it continues to function. You just seeing different things. So you could I I would I would argue that either is a possible. Like I can see the arguments for either because if you believe in a humanistic version of society, then you could say that it's never been functioning. But if you believe that society is what the people in it make then it's always been functioning the way it's supposed to. So like th those two arguments are not necessarily at odds for me. They're just a different perspective. But anyway, it's not like there was a point when it was good and now it's bad. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's something that I like realized somewhat recently um, was like a key step in my like journey um, of, of anti-racism was the shift um, from seeing society, like, or say, seeing American society, um, and the shift from thinking, you know, like, like a, like a Biden saying, "This is not who we are," right? To, uh, no, this is exactly who we are, <laughs> because. Because, you know, of course, there's the there's like the political, like, you know, rhetorical um, strategic effect that you might uh, argue for that framing sometimes due to the fact that most of society is ignorant about th this issue and like wants to wants to be patriotic to some degree or at least wants to think that our society is good mostly. Right. Um but if like for there to be the kind of like for there to ever be a enough support and of course it doesn't have to be a majority you don't need a majority to affect change i mean look the civil rights movement was overwhelmingly unpopular when it when it was going on but for there to be enough people to recognize uh the need for radical structural change the first step has to be like, no, okay, this is who we are, and we're not happy with it. Yeah, the the understanding, um, and and if this goes back to what I said a long time ago about what are they afraid of, and I think what scares people is that realization that this it's not bad apples, it's not a, a broken part of things, right? You know, to me, the most plain like. I'm not, in, I'm not, I've never been as interested in the Derek show and I'm interested in the other three cops who were just standing there, right? Because like, I think people, I think it's not necessarily unfair to think that most people aren't Derek Chauvin because most people aren't, um, you know, you can have those views or whatever, but like the actual act of that, I don't think most people do things like that. I do think there are a whole lot of people who would have just stood there though. And I'm interested in, in, the, in, this, in the bystanders there. And I don't mean the, the, the supposed Kitty Jenner fees bystander effect because that was actually not how that case happened. But I mean, like what you're seeing on that video uh, is people who are just like, well, it's, you know, a little bit easier if I just don't do anything. Um, and it, I was just talking to two people on a podcast the other day about do the right thing. And one of the things that we were talking about is how in that movie um, where Radio Rahim is killed, you know, a cop kills him, similar, you know, choking situation, but the other cop is trying to stop him. <laughs> and that's like, you know, the, the 
in real life, the other cops either join them or they don't do anything, right? And and if they do try to stop, they get fired or bullied out of the police force. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and it's also like the way people talk about bad apples. It's like you, you, people don't realize that the rest of that sentence <laughs> is that one bad apple spoils the bunch. I know. I, I actually like didn't know that until somewhat recently. I just had never heard the full phrase, and I was like, "Oh my god, why do people still use this?" Like, <laughs> so I'm saying though, like it's not like you all. It's the same. It's like cherry picking Martin Luther King quote. Just like you just have to read the rest of the sentence. Like you don't even have to try very hard. Like it's just like the next sentence. Um, and the way they always talk about like Martin Luther King didn't believe in the color of our skin, and I'm like. He, he said it was a dream because <laughs> it, it wasn't true. Yeah, I like I really like I had a I had a a kind of like like I don't know what to call it. What's like an epiphany? But like you're pissed off about like, like uh, I guess like a a revelation of some sorts when I was like. Because I had somewhat just passively accepted this, like, caricature of King that I had been given for a long time because I hadn't gone to his books myself. And I had, like, heard so many people argue, like, you know, the King vision. And so I just had somewhat, I mean, extremely naively, this image in my head of, like, okay, well, I guess, like, there was uh, one view uh, of, like, you know, the civil rights tradition, and it was, like, basically just, uh, all right, well, color blindness, and it'll eventually, with enough efforts, will achieve equality somehow. And you just stop and think about it for, like, half a second, and it just totally doesn't make any sense. And even, the, like, the King quote that we're given, like, nothing about it implies the kind of way that the conservatives want to spin it. Like it's a dream. Exactly. As you said, like it's, it's, it's literally an ideal end state. And now conservatives treat it as if, well, uh, you know, we live in the dream clearly. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's very like kind of like poetic in a very dark way. Like, you know, the way that the conservatives buy into the American dream, and then see themselves living in this Martin Luther Kingian dream, which is in a, in, in, in a kind of way, you know, this update of the American dream, because now, you know, you live in, we, now we live in an America where most people are not comfortable with seeing themselves as committed to white supremacy in a way that for the vast majority of our country's history, that was the norm. Like, you know, it was racism was not a bad thing. Well, I mean, the word racist itself, I think, didn't get invented until like the early 20th century. But like white supremacy, you know, that was the way things were supposed to be. But now you have this update where, you know, we have to, we have to, this idea of like King uh, compelling our country to finally live up to, you know, the ideals espoused in our founding documents. It's like, that's, those were not the ideals. <laughs> like, that's, you, you, you can construe them that way. That's not what they meant. The, the ideals in our founding documents were only white people could be citizens. Um, you know, straight up. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's literally in there. 
So, you know, um, like they wrote it down. It wasn't implied. It's just in there. Um, and they, they like added some stuff later where that wasn't true anymore. But like, if you want to talk about what the founders thought, you know, and it's like, and they like, well, not all the founders. It's like, come on, man. Like now you, with the, you can't split hairs like that. Um, so, you know, just sort of circle back here and, and sort of tie, tie off this knot of a discussion then, because, you know, I think that it's, it's worthwhile for people to, to sort of sit with the complexity. And I think what I do understand just from a again from a human perspective that like it is sometimes hard to go forward especially from any sort of position of privilege um without like uh a set of goals you know like it is hard sometimes you're like what do I do next and you know it's like I get it like I I tend to have everything written down about what I'm gonna do so like I get like you know but I think um for me, especially for me, I have, you know, certainly class privilege, I have gender privilege and sort of certain things, but then like I'm still black and, you know, neurodivergent and there's, that has more of an impact on me than I have realized until I was diagnosed and thought about a lot of things in my life. Um, but like, uh, I think that that's sort of treading the water thing, you know, that like, you're not necessarily planning to get to another plane. You're just like, I'm going to have to, to sit in this. And that's not like a sexy vision of like, well, I'm just going to be here doing this literally forever. Uh, <laughs> people are like, no, no, no. But what if, what's on the other side? It's like, hey, it's like, hey, I don't know. <laughs> and, and I mean, if, and as you say, you know, it's, it's, it's an uncomfortable thought for many people to have, but I think in, in some ways it's like, it's, it's an empowering thought because think about, a, I mean, there's another aspect of life that that applies in my opinion, quite perfectly to, and it's perhaps the most important of all of death. Like we don't know what's going to happen when we die. You know, when you think about it, that you're going to die. Do we really comprehend that? I mean, I I don't think that I do. I, there's people who spend their whole lives meditating, preparing for that kind of thing. And, you know, that's the sort of empowering work that, as you say, sitting in it can do. Because at, at, at some point, your life will be no more. And there's no, like, guarantee of a after anything. And like that, that, that sort of, that sort of, I mean, some, some people are, you know, very like uncomfortable with that thought. Other people are not so, you know, they, they don't really like think much of it one way or another. They realize that, um, everyone's going to die, but that sort of thing, like, I don't know that, that, that's just where my mind goes initially. It's like, well, if, if you're so, if you're so, um, if you're so uh, averse to the idea that there is no end state, that there is no, you know, you do all this stuff and then finally you're done and, and mission accomplished. And what are you going to do about this big looming thing? <laughs> yeah, I think that that's, that's true. I think that like there's, there's the, there's the flip side of it where it's like, if a person 
is motivated by, you know, theoretical gold medals, but they're actually helping to redistribute power. Well, I guess I don't necessarily care <laughs> that they're motivated <laughs> by some some what I think is not the right thing, right? You know, if they go out there and they want people to celebrate them, but they've actually done some stuff, you know, like a lot of stuff, well, you know what? I guess I don't really care that much um, if the things happened. But just as a, as a collective way forward, and again, I'm speaking specifically to people who have some measure of privilege or power, it's, um, I think that being okay with the lack of, of an endpoint is, is the challenge, and it's hard, and I don't know if I'm always okay with it, because, like, it is, there's, if there's, there's, like, I don't, I, I'm, after I finish this in a second, like, I, I don't have, like, work to do tonight. Right. Like I, I just scheduled it so I don't have any. And then sometimes when that happens, I'm just like, I'm just going to stare at this wall, I guess. I don't like what am I? <laughs> you know, it's, no, it's fine. But like sometimes I'm just like, OK, but what's next? But what's next? What's the step? What's the step? And when it comes to something like challenging, like, you know, racism, whiteness and all these sort of things, like uh, it is sometimes hard without knowing what the next step is. But I think that's the point of doing, you know, working collectively is that you might not know what it is, but the person you're talking to might be able to help you find it. So that's why I think it's really important to have these conversations. This is the reason I have these conversations on here so that hopefully the people who listen to this can go and have these conversations with somebody else. So that's the goal. So thank you, Sam, for joining me on this call, for this discussion. Um, I certainly found it very useful. I hope that the listeners will also find it useful. If you have any final thoughts that you want to share? Uh, no, absolutely. Just uh, thank you so much as well. Uh, uh, great conversation. Found it very enlightening and um, uh, gratifying. It was, uh, it was nice to go through these ideas with somebody who clearly has you know, thought through them um, at a very deep level. So I, I appreciate it.